Um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, we're, we're beginning the study here of a new covenant that is established in Christ. And it lays out in these 13 chapters some wonderful things. And so we're going to go through a lot of passages of Scripture this morning. So get your fingers ready and we're going to fly in just a second. But let's begin with Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, 2, 3, and 4. Long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now there's a story about a preacher and one of the members of his congregation. They, they were standing outside by the street and the road and they were holding up a sign. And the sign just read simply, the end is near, turn around before it's too late. And eventually a car comes down the, down the street and, and sees the sign and he pauses for just a second and he rolls down his window and he yells out to these two fellows. He says, I wish you two nuts would just quit doing these things and leave us alone. And so he rolled his window up, sped on down the road and turned around the corner. It wasn't long after that they heard the screeching of tires and a big splash. A member of the congregation turned to the preacher and he says, I told you we should have made the sign simpler that just said, bridge out. (laughs) It's obvious, isn't it, that that sometimes the uh, church people should be more selective in what we say. And matter of fact, we're seeing that quite often today, especially in our social media and the way people speak. The words we use ought to be very intentional and that we don't just let words slide from our lips uh, easily. If something is important enough, I mean, if it's critical enough, we try to be careful what we say and how we say it then there are those times when we do not want to be misunderstood, and so we sometimes will even write out what we want to say and follow it then word for word. In our passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, God is telling us that He is very selective in how He chose to speak to the world. Hebrews 1.1 says that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God spoke. I mean, he actually had something that he wanted them to say, and what he had to say was so important that he used a very special group of people, different than anybody else, called prophets. And he spoke through them, and he repeated his message through those prophets at many times and in many different types of ways. Now that implies to us that God has something specific that he wants to talk about when he's using those ways and those means. And so we ask ourselves, really, what is it that God wants us to know about? What would he be so intentional in trying to communicate to us? Well, Hebrews tells us plainly that God spoke through us to us through those prophets 
and all those different ways. Then he says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. His Son. Jesus. Jesus is the message. Jesus is the purpose on which he has spoken to the world through all these years. And the coming of Jesus was what God was focusing on in the Old Testament and throughout all of history. And matter of fact, in, in, there's this repeated message in the Old Testament over and over again, and it's this, someone's coming. Get ready, somebody's going to be here. It's not too far off, but someone's going to be here. And it's the Messiah, the long-awaited one that they were anticipating. It would be the Son of God. Sometimes God would be really subtle in the way that he would communicate this. For example, I was reading a blog this week. Uh, it's entitled, From the Mind of Dulos" by a man by the name of Richard Carr. And he told of an intriguing message that he found when he was studying the genealogies of Noah. Genealogies, you know what those are, right? Those are the names that say so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so or was the father of. And so it's, it's the history, it's the ancestor lineage of that. So listen to what he has to say. He said, the Jewish rabbis at the time of Christ used to say that the word of God is like a burning bush. They were talking about the fact that when Moses had his first encounter with God on the mountain, God did not reveal himself to Moses until Moses took the time to investigate the burning bush. Then, and only then, did God call to Moses. Therefore, the Word of God is just like a burning bush, and it requires us to stop in our busy lives to investigate what the living God wants to say to us. I'm constantly amazed at the golden nuggets of truth that I find in the most unlikely places in the Bible. Listen to what he has to say. One of the many awesome things in Genesis is the genealogies that most people ignore. The neat thing about the children of Israel is that their names meant something and could often tell us about their character. So in Genesis 5, we find the genealogy of Noah. It, it, mysteriously, we can find the story of the gospel in that genealogy. He says, you got to keep in mind that the names of the Hebrews had real meanings, and they were attached to them. So let's start with just the names and their listing. Well, there's Adam, who's the father of Seth, who is the father of Enosh, who is the father of Kenan, who is the father of Mahalalel, the father of Jared, the father of Enoch, the father of Methuselah, the father of Lamech, and the father of Noah. All right, just look at those names. Now, he says, let's run through their names and their meanings and see what happens. Adam, for example, the word in the name Adam means man. So that's what it means in Hebrew. It simply means man. Seth in Hebrew means appointed. Enosh means mortal or human, and so on and so forth. So he takes these names, and he comes up with the meanings of their names, and he lays them out specifically in order of their appearing in Scripture. And this is what he has concluded in this, this little section of the genealogy. Taking their names, and instead of reading it in the Hebrew, we'll put the English translation for it, all right? Man appointed mortal sorrow. The blessed God shall come down teaching. His death shall bring the despairing rest 
or comfort. Simple. You read that in those, just those simple ten words, those ten names from Adam to Noah, and we come up with a gospel message that is filled right here. And so, in one of the most beautifully constructed and expressive sentences found in the entire Bible, in Hebrews chapter 1, we see this, this sentence that is written out. In our translations, in English, it's, it's written out maybe in three or four sentences, but in the Greek, Hebrews 1, 2, 3, and 4 is one sentence. And so, in this sentence, we were immediately reminded that God has spoken. And the opening words of this epistle, this letter to the Hebrews, it sets the tone for the entire book. So, they subtly contrast the former revelation, which was the Mosaic covenant that God had given to Moses for the people of Israel, with the new revelation that has come in Jesus Christ, which is a new covenant by which we live under today in the church. Now, under the old covenant, God spoke to the Hebrew fathers by the prophets. This individual revelation was so intermittent and, and sporadic that it wasn't just a constant him speaking, but sometimes there were years and decades and even centuries when he was silent and did not communicate. Now the Apostle Paul even refers to the Old Covenant and the way in God spoke as something that might be hidden or a mystery. And it was spread out over at least ten centuries in which God spoke through these prophets by various means. And sometimes God directly would intervene in history to reveal himself. He would do that through visions, through dreams, handwriting on a wall. He would do that in a burning bush. And often God's messages were delivered through angels. that They would come down into this world and communicate with people. Those revelations really were preparatory, or, or they were, in essence, um, kind of fragmented, and they were given in the past. But the divine revelation, revelation which has been made known in Jesus Christ, is present, it's fresh, it's new, it's now, and it's significantly different than anything he'd ever done before. So this morning, I want us to kind of examine, in this one sentence, Hebrews 1 to 4, Eight separate phrases that, that are used here to describe this new revelation in, in Jesus and, and understand who he is as the Son, the divine messenger, and of the Word of God. So the first thing is this. We discover that he is heir apparent. Let's look at Hebrews 1, verse 2. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also he created the world. Now the first evidence that is given to prove that Jesus is, is in this lofty position is the fact that God has appointed him heir of all things. Heir of all things is, is very most likely a title of his dignity and his superiority, and it shows Jesus has a place of supremacy over all things because he is going to receive it all. The word heir in our normal American culture and understanding is simply this. It's entered into the possessions of something that you have gained from somebody else after they die. They benefit you by their death, and so it's taken over when they pass away. However, in the New Testament, the word heir does not mean necessarily when somebody dies that you get their estate. 
it can be bestowed upon them at any time. It's whenever they take possession of something that was to be theirs in the end. And so without any kind of reference to a specific way that property comes into possession. So these words, they, they kind of resound with some overtones about the cross because it is there that he receives. Instead of the death of God, it's the death of the Son in which he becomes heir. It's a little bit different. Now Jesus tells a parable. And in this parable, it's about a vineyard owner who finally sends his son to communicate with the tenants of his place. So in Matthew chapter 21, verse 37 to 38, Jesus says this, Finally he sent his son to them, saying, They'll respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and have his inheritance. That kind of reflects the attitude that Jesus faced everywhere while he walked within this world. Now the second aspect of his supremacy is this. It's discovered in the second verse there as well. Jesus is the means by which God created the universe. Again, verse 2. In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So before Jesus ever became incarnate, before he was born into this world, before he became flesh and blood like you and me, he was there in heaven and he was actively helping the Father create the world. And to present Jesus as creator is to ascribe him divinity and authority, which is quite apart from any of the other ways in which God has spoken through the prophets. He's not just any prophet as some have suspected him to be. He is different than that. So in, in John chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 3, we read these words as John begins to understand for us and display for us who Jesus is. He says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he says, he was in the beginning with God. Now listen in verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, points it a little bit different when it speaks these words. It says about Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he helped create the world. Jesus, the word of God who came to life, spoke and it came into existence. The third aspect of his supremacy, even beyond the prophets, is this. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. So let's look at verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 1. It begins by saying, He is the radiance of God, of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This word glory that is displayed here in our verse, glory is often used to to be explained by using some kind of a dazzling light, almost as if it were a brilliant lightning that's coming forth from him. And so 
we see that Jesus himself shines forth this glorious light just as the Father does. No prophet can that be said of, not even Moses. I mean, but Moses, we know when he went up on Mount Sinai and God spoke with him and gave him the Ten Commandments, when he came down off of that mountain, it says that his face was radiant because he was there under the glory of God and he kind of absorbed it himself and he glowed as if he was emitting light. But the difference about Moses was that that eventually that glory would begin to fade and the people were afraid that God was leaving them. And so every time he had a communication with God, whether it be on the mountain or in the tent of meeting, he would come out radiant with the glory of God, fading daily. So he would cover his face with a veil so the people would not know that it was leaving. But here we see that Jesus reflects the very glory of God. Peter, James, and John were asked to go with him one time up on a mountain, and they got to experience this moment of enlightenment in Jesus. When they had climbed that mountain, he was then transfigured right before their very eyes, and he began to shine with the brilliance of lightning. Even his clothes became as white as could be and and shone forth. And, And so Peter... He has just made this wonderful confession about Jesus, and Jesus predicts his death on the cross, and he lays out some conditions of what it means for us to truly be a disciple of him, and then they go up on this mountain. And so listen what Luke chapter 9, verse 28 and 29 says. And now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. You see, as Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, his final prayer was that we might see him in his true glorified nature. John 17, 24, Jesus prays this prayer. He says, Father... I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. A fourth expression that is listed here that uh, talk about the, the supremacy of Christ and that he is the ultimate messenger from God is that this expression of God's character in, in human form. He is, he is the exact representation or image. Let's look at Hebrews 1.3. His radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You see, nature speaks to the fundamental elements of which everything is made. For example, in nature, water is identified as H2O. It's made up of two parts hydrogen and one part oxygen. And so the exact imprint or representation, as some scriptures translate here, it tells us that whatever elements that you might find in the Father, our God in heaven, you are going to find exactly the same elements in Jesus the Son. It makes it easy for us to understand when he says, when you see me, you have seen the Father. The Father and I are one. 
The Apostle Paul tries to convey this. And, and, and so when we think about the exact things of who God is, those things are discovered even in Jesus. His omniscience, His omnipotence, His, his omnipresence, all the, the good and the glorious and the infinite holy and the wisdom and the just and all the natures that we would describe God, those are described in Jesus. Paul conveys both this in his second letter to the church of Corinth and to his letter in Colossae, which we had just had read earlier by Sean. So Colossians says this. It says in verse 15 of chapter 1, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Why? to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's the one thing that Satan does not want us to see, is the glory of God imaged in Jesus Christ. So it wants us to look at him as if he's just the same as anybody else, that there's nothing unique or nothing significant about him. And so he has blinded our eyes, so when we can't believe that Jesus really is God himself in the flesh. The fifth aspect of his uh, supremacy is this, that Jesus is the sustainer of life. He upholds everything. Let's look at verse 3 again. If he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus upholds all creation when you consider this. Colossians, again, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 says, For him, for by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He sustains everything within this world. He is the glue that keeps it all together. He's that which, as, as if Atlas was the one who had the world on his shoulders, reality is it is Jesus. You see, and this claim would be one of Jesus' continuing tasks. It's something he is doing even today. It's not something he did, though he did do it. It is something that he is doing, and it's something that he will continue to do throughout all eternity. He is the one who holds this together. It's a part of God's plan. So Jesus is so great that he can all do all of this merely by speaking his words. For his word is that powerful. Now, in the days of creation, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God spoke the words and told the birds to fly, and they flew, and, and the waters to teem with animals and life. And all of a sudden, they were filled with all the, the life that's in our oceans today. When he spoke the words, things came into existence. Jesus' word is that powerful. And so Jesus says to all things and to all creation, hold together, hang on. And it does. The sixth thing is this, Jesus is Redeemer. He's Redeemer. Let's look again at verse 3. It says he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the, the universe by the, power of his, by the word of his power. After 
making purification for sins. So as we near the end of this long sentence, we come down to this point where the phrase is really what it's all about. That Jesus came into this world for the redemption of the world to make us right once again with God because of our sin. He's going to purify us. Job, in chapter 19, in verse 25, he understands that a Redeemer is on his way. And so he speaks these powerful words. He says, for I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And in Galatians, Paul tells the church there in chapter 3, verse 13, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He says, for it's written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Because Jesus went to the cross, he became a curse for us so that we can release the curse of sin and death that we so rightly deserve. And Paul tells the church in Rome in chapter 3, verse 22 through 24, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. You see, the the reference of this redemptive work is right there on the cross. That's where it took place. What Jesus did there redeems us from our sins. He made purification for sin, and that was the job initially of the priest in the Mosaic Covenant that, that was set up there. The Levites were the only ones to be able to go into the temple and offer up sacrifice for redemption of the people. And so we have this introduced at the very beginning of Hebrews, a main theme that's going to kind of follow itself all the way through about the high priesthood of Jesus, who is different than the priesthood here in this present world of the Old Testament covenant, but one that's new, but yet is one that is of old. Jesus came to earth to deal with man's problem of sin, and his once-for-all sacrifice would initiate this new covenant of purification for us and redemption between man and God. But this redemption is not granted to everybody, only to those who are going to put their faith and their trust in Jesus, which is why it's so important that we share that message with people as well. And that's a theme that is also developed later on in the book of Hebrews. And another theme that's developed later in Hebrews is the purification of sin that is neither the Levitical priesthood or or the procedures that they had to go through for that or even the blood of bulls and goats that would be sacrificed because they can never fully carry away the sins of man and redeem them. The seventh aspect is this, that Jesus is sovereign over all things. Again, in verse 3, it says, He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His image, of His nature. And, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So following Jesus' redemptive work on the cross, He sat down at the highest place of honor in all of the universe, given the the ultimate authority of everything overall at the right hand of God. Now now we kind of see why James and John wanted to sit at the right and the left hand of God, of Jesus, didn't they? Because that's a place of authority. And Jesus, when he finishes his redemptive work on the cross, 
It's finished, he says. He sits down at the right hand of God, accepting all the authority that God would place within him. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 13, it says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. I mean, Jesus is going to be exalted the most honorable place in all the world. And it's a place of dignity and honor. And it was predicted in the Old Testament, the Scriptures. Matter of fact, in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And that verse is quoted again here in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13. And also, Jesus speaks about that in himself in Matthew chapter 22, verses 42 and 44, as he's wrapping up his final teaching before his crucifixion. The fact that Jesus sat down is very significant. Because the priest, they could never sit down because their work was not done. But when he sits down, it means what he has done on the cross is finished. There is no more work that needs to be done to redeem us. The only time that, that we see Jesus not sitting at the right hand of the throne in heaven is found in Acts chapter 17. Or Acts chapter 7. There are 19 times that the word of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the throne of God except for one of them, is found in Acts chapter 7. That's when Peter, or Stephen, is being, uh, cruci- or being murdered and, 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 and uh, martyred for his faith in Jesus. And as he's about to be killed and stoned to death, Stephen looks up into heaven, he says, look, I see the heavens opened up, and the Son of God standing at the right hand of the throne of God. And that's the only time, everywhere else, he's seated. The eighth and the final thing that we're going to look at this morning is this. Jesus is a name above all names, even angels. Hebrews 1.4 Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The word better, or in our text that we've read this morning, much superior, is one of the, the author's favorite words. Matter of fact, he uses it 13 times out of 19 within, this passage, in, within the book of Hebrews. Jesus became or having become better is somewhat unexpected. After we've looked at all these other uh, aspects of him, now he winds up by saying he's even better than that. You see, it's possible for the author's intention here in the book of Hebrews that he's using this phrase because he was considering what Jesus had done in him becoming man, giving up his glory in heaven and, and becoming something even lower than the angels as a human. And so, while he was incarnate, the scripture tells us that he was a little bit lower than the angels. We see that in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, and in Psalm 8, 4 through 6, and in Philippians chapter 2, 6 through 8. He's no longer lowered, however. He was lower while he was within this world, but now today he is above that. So Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, listen to what it says. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might take death for everyone. The name that Jesus inherits 
is the name Son. And that Son is an important name. It's an important distinction. We talked earlier about the importance of the meanings of the names that the Hebrews would give their children. And this is significant for us because Jesus was Son. By virtue of His incarnation, He was born into this world. He became a Son. And He is still today the Son of God. And He attains this more excellent, this better name than anything else. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. It says, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which you have been called you. What are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might? That He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Only Jesus, only Jesus has the right to be called Son because of what he has done for us. I read a story about a wealthy man who had a son, and his wife had died. And the son and his father became very close, and they did a lot of things together. Matter of fact, they, they both developed this passion for art and collecting wonderful masterpieces. And, and the father had been able to purchase some of the masters like Picasso and Rembrandt and Van Gogh, and, and, and he'd collected them. They were worth millions of dollars. When the Vietnam War began, his son enlisted, and he served in the Marines. After just a few months later, his father got a message that his son had been killed in battle while his son was carrying another man to safety, trying to help save him. A few months after that, a stranger approached this door of the house, and he had this wrapped package with him. And as the father opened and and welcomed him in, the, the, the fellow said, you may not know who I am, but but I was with your son when he was wounded and died because I was the man that he saved as he was carrying me. And I'd like to give you a gift. Your son often talked about your love and your passion for art. So the best I could do was I I drew a portrait of him in his dress blues as a gift to you. And I'd like for you to have it. And the father was so torn up by the emotion of that moment that he began to cry and he offered to pay this young man for the the portrait that he had made but he said no he says it's a gift for what your son has done for me I could never repay the father then hung the portrait over his mantle in his house it was a favorite place when people would come and visit him he would he would lead them into that room and to show them the portrait of his son right there nobody came into the house without seeing it because He was passionate about what his son had done. Finally, the the man died and his artwork was to be auctioned off. There were a lot of collectors who came from all over the world because they wanted to get an opportunity to purchase some of these rare pieces of art. And as the auction began, the auctioneer said, 
as we begin, the first picture that we're going to auction off is the portrait of his son, and then we'll go on. He said, so who will give me $100 or $200? And the room was silent. But he persisted. He kept saying, you know, the deceased clearly left instructions that this was to be sold first, so we're not going to move forward until this one is sold. Finally, a, a voice from the back said, we didn't come here to buy that one. We came to buy the others, so put the others out there. He said, we can't do that. So who'll give me at least a hundred? In the back of the room, a voice came and said, I'll, I'll give you a hundred dollars. I was a gardener for the man here and his son, and I knew them through the years, and, and I'll, I'll give you $100 for the portrait. And so he says, any other bids? $100 going once, twice, sold. And then he put the gavel down, and he said, well, the auction is over. You may all leave. And they're saying, hold on, what about the others? What about the Rembrandts? What about the Van Goghs? And he said, I was told you, I was given specific instructions about how this was to take place. And he said this, from the will of the deceased, that this would be the only painting auctioned off, and that whoever bought this painting would inherit the entire estate, including all the other paintings. Here, I'll read the words that he left in his will. Whoever chooses my son gets it all. The book of Hebrews teaches us the same thing. 2,000 years ago, he sent his son into this world who surrendered his life to save yours and mine. And whoever takes the Son of God gets it all. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 12, it says this, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I'm asking you this morning to choose the Son. No matter what the cost is for you, choose the Son. Because it's life eternal. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, we know that what you have done in Jesus bringing Him into this world, allowing Him to, to give up His glory in heaven and, and all that, that goes with that to become like me, like us, even lower than the angels Himself at that moment. And yet, He was fully divine. The One whom You spoke through at the creation of this world and all things came into existence. The One whom has a name that is above all names, that we would put our faith in Him, we might find salvation. Father, help us to choose Your Son so we can live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.